that can be found um, on the wall behind me, uh, also on page 1187 um, and onto 88. Um, in the black church Bibles, we should be found in the chair above you underneath. So Romans chapter 11, verses 1 until 32. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from, from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were cut off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he would not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if, they do, and if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut off, if you were cut of an olive tree that is by what? that is wild by nature and contrary, contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved 
as, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take, their sins, take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as, as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Well, good evening, friends. Uh, some shock faces seeing me walk up the pulpit. What am I doing up there? That's okay. I'm coming down to your level. Um, well, I want to say over the past few weeks, I've been greatly encouraged by how hard you've been working, asking good questions, having great discussions after our service, and, and having lively discussions in our growth groups as well. So, so thank you for that, and thank you for working hard. Um, we want to always, as Christians, strive to have our minds aligned with God's mind so that we might understand his thoughts. And tonight is no different. It is a big chapter, and tonight especially, but because of the topic we'll be looking at, I especially want your minds to be acute and attentive. And so do keep your Bibles open. We will work our way through it. It is a big chapter, but I want your minds to be attentive tonight. It's, it can be difficult uh, but, uh, but we can uh, do so with God's help. So let's do that. We'll pray again. Heavenly Father, we, we pray, as we have already prayed, that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand. We pray that you will illuminate our minds by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of us who have read much of the Bible, and we're very familiar with the stories of the Bible, then we would all know that though the Bible was written for us, it was not written ultimately about us. It was written, recorded, transmitted for us, but it was not written about us. So in the Bible what we see is that we know God, we know his eternal purposes, we know his love demonstrated so clearly in the death and resurrection of his son. We know from the Bible that God has come for us, that he would even make wretched sinners like us, the very children of God, sons and daughters of the king of the universe. We know that the Bible is for us, and that is profound, that is glorious. I mean, some even call the Bible... Uh, God's love letter to this world, to humanity. But though the Bible was written for us, it was not written ultimately about us. We have to remember that. Of course, it is about God first and foremost. But on a human level, it is ultimately about the Israelites. You see, two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament... 
That is about the Israelites, not about us. It is for us, but it is about the Israelites. This is their Bible, that part of the Bible, their scriptures, God's promises to them, God's dealings with them, God's dwelling amongst them, and God's prophets from amongst them. It all started with the Israelites. It is for us, but it is about them. And so, yes, the Bible is for us. It is about them. And so I wonder whether that takes you by surprise at all. You see, when we think about world mission, what do we normally think about? You see, it's very easy to think we want all people saved, people from every tribe, nation and tongue. We want the Australians, we want the Chinese, the Indonesians, the Japanese, the Italians, the Germans, the Russians, every tribe and tongue saved. And in a church like ours, that is what we want to reflect. And so it's very easy to forget, what about the first two-thirds of the Bible? What about the Jews? What about the Israelites? Now looking around here, I suspect most of us here are Gentiles. I'm not sure if there are any Jews amongst us. But what does God have in store for the Jews? Two-thirds of the Bible are about them. Does God's worldwide mission extend to them too? How would you answer that? You see, the promises began with Abraham, we saw in our first reading. Surely they too must have a place in God's eternal purpose. But you see, I suspect for most of us tonight, we wouldn't normally be thinking about the Jews. We normally wouldn't be thinking about the Israelites. Back in uni, I did have a a Jewish friend who was a Christian, who is a Christian. But normally, as Gentile Christians, we would normally not think about them. Well, you see, that's the great benefit of studying the Bible chapter by chapter, book by book, so that we don't skip things we think unimportant, but God thinks important. You see, God sets the agenda, and so today we need to think about the Jews. Today we need to think about the Israelites. And so what about the Jews? Well, what we find in this chapter is that it was not just the Gentiles but the Jews who have a special place in God's heart, a very special place. And it's when we come to understand the Jews' place that we come to more fully understand our own place in God's eternal purpose. And so what about the Jews? Well, they have a special place in God's heart, though it seemed they have all turned away from God. Where are they now? Are they Christians? Well, here we see Paul makes clear that they have not been rejected by God. We're talking about ethnic Jews. God did not cast them aside in favour of Gentiles. It's not like God thought, well, these Jewish people, they're not trusting me, so I'm going to settle for Gentiles. No, that is not the case. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. Now, if you think about this, the Jewish people, the blood descendants of Abraham, they have been subject to much hatred and persecution in human history. I mean, there's even a term for it. You know what the term is? Anti-Semitic. And the worst of which was the Holocaust, where six million Jews were killed in terrible, horrible concentration camps. The atrocities of humankind 
caused that. But yet, if you think about it, though they were subject to much persecution in human history, there are still Jews all around the world. They have not been wiped out. And so if we look at human history, there have been many people groups, many cultures who have now become extinct. But not so the Jews, though they have been the subject of much persecution. Now the Jewish nation, they've always been relatively small in history. But yet they've been around for thousands of years. And so God has not rejected his people. But more than that, they remain in God's salvation plan. And so here Paul gives us two examples that God has not rejected his people. The first example is Paul himself. He is an Israelite and God has not abandoned him. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. That's the first example. And he gives a second example from the Old Testament. And this example is about Elijah, the prophet, who thought he was the only one left believing in God, that the whole nation has turned their backs on God. And so in verse 3, we read that he said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so Paul's making clear here the ethnic Jews. God has not rejected his people, but that God has graciously always kept a remnant. And so I was thinking about this chapter, and I find it so long, so difficult, and with my mind, an engineering mind, I wanted to see something graphically. So this is what I've done for you to make things easy, hopefully. If we picture here ethnic Israel, this big blue circle, and the Gentiles are over here. And so we can really, in a sense, classify the whole world, all the peoples of this earth, into these two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now what we read is that God did not cast away the first circle and just focus only on the Gentiles. Instead, what we see is that God has always kept a remnant inside ethnic Israel who are saved. There's always a remnant. And so Paul fits in that little red circle. Elijah fits in that little red circle. The apostles, who were Jews themselves, fit in that little red circle. But then, of course, it raises the question, what happened to the rest of Israel, the bigger blue circle? There's so many there. What has God done with them? Well, we read here, they've been hardened. Their hearts have been hardened, and intentionally so. Look at verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. The others meaning those outside the remnant. They were hardened. And then there are these quotes from Psalm and Isaiah. They could not see, they could not hear, they stumbled. They were in the dark. And so the part of the circle that's still blue, that's been hardened. Their hearts have been hardened and they're in the dark. And so the question is, what will happen with them? What will God do with ethnic Israel? What about them? 
What about this group that is not within the remnant? What about the vast majority of the Israelites? You see, they are still an integral part of Israel. And so this brings us to the next question Paul is going to answer. And he says it there, Has the rest of Israel become so hardened that they are beyond saving? You see, that's Paul's genuine concern. He wants more than that little red circle to be saved. He wants more than a remnant to be saved. He wants the whole circle. He's concerned for the rest of Israel. I mean, it would be a bit like if only those who live in Canberra are saved and you want everyone saved, of course you'll be concerned for the rest of Australia. And so that was Paul's concern. He knows the remnant, they're safe and they're saved. What about the bigger circle? What about the rest? And so the question is, is the rest of Israel, though they have been hardened, are they now beyond saving? Does it mean that there will be no salvation for those in the blue circle? And so verse 11, we read, Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? And Paul's answer, not at all. Now what we see here is the whole purpose of hardening. The whole purpose of hardening of Israel in the first place was in fact for our good. I mean, that's a strange idea. They've been hardened for our good. It was, in fact, for the salvation of Gentiles. It sounds strange to think about it. But let's think about it. What happened as a consequence of Israel's hardening? What did they do? Well, if we look at the Gospel accounts, what happened when the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, their hearts were hardened? What resulted from their hard hearts? Well, they took their Messiah they beat him, they mocked him, and they crucified him. And what was the result of the death of their Messiah? Salvation went to the Gentiles. And so what happened then, because of their hard hearts, over in the Gentile circle, we start to see another little circle called Christians, Gentile Christians. Because of the hard heart of Israel, there are now Christians. You see, there would be no salvation for Gentiles at all if Israel did not have their hearts hardened. We, in fact, see the same thing in Paul's own ministry. Now, if you think about Paul's ministry, how did he conduct his work? Well, at every city he attended, where did he go first? He went to the synagogue first. He went to the Jews first. And some of the Jews did believe. But often what we see in the book of Acts the Jews in the synagogue, they rejected Paul. They rejected the gospel of their Messiah. They rejected their Messiah, and often they wanted Paul killed as well. And so what did Paul do after that because their hearts were hardened? Well, Paul went to the Gentiles. He proclaimed to the Gentiles the Jewish Messiah, and they believed and they were saved. And so Paul then became the apostle to the Gentiles. And so the hardening of the rest of Israel was in fact not accidental, but intentional. I mean, who would have ever thought that up? You see, that was all intentional so that Gentiles might be saved. And so that in the end, 
Israel might be saved as well. So have a look, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And so the Gentiles then, that is, those who are non-Jews, are both the beneficiaries of Israel's lapse, but also they become the means of salvation of those very Israelites. And so their salvation then can only mean greater blessings. And so what has happened is, it's a bit like salvation is like a boomerang. It has gone out from Israel to the Gentiles, and it will come back again to the Israelites. And so here we see the very heart of God for the Jews. He is still interested in them. They have not been cast aside. They are not beyond saving. And they are not beyond the grace of God. Now Paul turns his attention to the Gentiles. And he wants Gentiles, us, to be aware well, yes, God has in his heart a place for Gentiles like us, but we need to know our place. You see, it's very easy for us who are Gentiles to think, well, God is all about us. For God so loved the world, he's talking about us. Whether we're Australians or Chinese or Japanese or Germans, God is about us. Very easy for us to think that way. But we must know our place. And that is... We can't be proud of our place, nor can we be complacent of our place. And so first, we can't be proud of our place, of our salvation. We cannot be arrogant. You see, salvation has come to the Gentiles so that it could come back to the Israelites. We're the means of salvation for the Israelites. It's like a boomerang. Out from Israel to Gentiles and then back to them again. And so let me try to illustrate again. The rest outside the remnant, the blue part, they rejected their Messiah. It caused Gentile Christians to grow. And as it grew, it made Israel jealous. And as a result, what happened? Well, more has come into faith. So it's like this boomerang. And that was God's plan all along. And so that's what we see. Paul says, verse 13 to 16, have a look. I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Now that first fruit idea is speaking perhaps of that remnant, which is indicative of the bigger circle. And then it goes on, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And so that's perhaps speaking of the patriarchs. They are the root that gives life to the branches. And so Paul's just making the point, if you're a, a Gentile Christian, you cannot be proud. We need to know our place in God's big plan of salvation. You see, we're only a part of it. In fact, more than that, we're not only just a part of it, we're an unnatural part of it. And that's what Paul makes clear in this olive tree illustration. 
Gentiles are the wild branches. They don't belong. They don't belong in the tree. But in the kindness of God, they have been grafted in the cultivated olive tree. And so verse 17 to 21, have a look. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, that is talking about the Gentiles, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Do you see the point he's making here? There can be no boasting because you are saved. No pride, no arrogance. If you are a Gentile Christian, he's making the point you don't originally belong there in the tree. But now that you are grafted in, you get to enjoy the blessings that comes from it. And so we as Gentile Christians, we owe our salvation to not our heritage, but their heritage. It doesn't work the other way around. And so just as easy it is for God to graft us in, it is in fact easy, we read here, for God to break us off again. And so there can never be any looking down upon anyone who is not saved, especially the Jews. They naturally belong in the tree, not us. And so we can never become natural branches, even when we are grafted in. And so us being in the tree is never a matter of right, but of pure grace and mercy. And his point is clear. Don't be proud. So we cannot be proud. But he also says now we cannot be complacent as well. We've been engrafted in by faith, and we remain in only by faith, which means we need to keep on believing, remain in God's kindness. And if you stop believing, what will happen? You will be broken off. That's God's sternness. He did it to the Jews. And so you can't muck around with God. You can't take advantage of him. Look at verse 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And so what that verse makes clear is that nice, catchy Christian slogans can sometimes be very unhelpful. Slogans like, once saved, always saved. It's actually unhelpful. It's in fact not true. I mean, if you do not believe today, if you were to die today and you do not believe today, you have no assurance of salvation. You can't depend on your faith that was expressed 10 years ago or 20 years ago and say, well, I believed back then. No, you need to believe today. You didn't need to make sure. Today is the day you still believe. You must remain in the kindness of God. And so when friends come to us and say, well, I believed God when I was 15. I should be okay. Well, what we really want to know is, do you still believe in God today? Otherwise, 
Unbelief means that you will be broken off. And so what this means is that there must never be any complacency in our Christian walk. And Paul, he now develops this illustration further. If God is able to graft into the tree pagan, idol-worshipping, pork-eating Gentiles who don't belong in the tree, then he's making the point it's far easier to graft back in the Jews who already have the covenants and promises and adoption as sons and the patriarchs. They belong already. And so verses 23 and 24, have a look. And if they, that is the Jews, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And that is why when Jews become Christians, we don't say they were converted into Christianity. They don't convert, they are fulfilled. When Jews become Christians, it's not conversion, it is fulfilment because the promises were theirs already. Their origin makes their restoration the most natural thing. They were already the natural branches. And so the promises are fulfilled in them when they come to believe. And so a rabbi, Henry Bregman, who became a Christian, he speaks of coming to faith not as conversion, but his eyes open up to things he didn't see before. And so what we see here in this chapter, God has a heart for Jews, but God also has a heart for Gentiles. But we who are Gentile Christians, we must, must hear this stern warning. We cannot be proud, nor can we be complacent. And so what we're seeing here is then God's plan of salvation, not just for the Jews alone, not just for the Gentiles alone, God's plan of salvation is for Jews and Gentiles. I found this particularly helpful because I tend to think, I'm just thinking about Gentiles, the world, every tribe, tongue and nation, that's just a Gentile world. What about the Jews? Well, God's plan of salvation is for Jew and Gentile. And what we see here is that there will be the full number of Gentile Christians and the full number of Jewish Christians in heaven however many that full number is. Now, if you think about this chapter, who could have ever made this up? Who could have ever imagined or guessed that this was the way God had planned all along? That even their hardness of heart was part of God's plan for salvation. And so that's what we see, verse 25 and 26. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may be be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, those verses are, in fact, quite complicated. Some have understood these verses to be saying, all Gentiles will be saved first, and then after that, or Israelites will be saved afterwards. There is this chronological sequence in salvation history. Some have understood that verse that way. And so this has led some Christians to think that somehow 
before the return of Jesus Christ and necessarily before the return of Jesus Christ, there will be this end-of-time influx of Jewish believers. In fact, some have even claimed that this has shaped American foreign policy, that Israel needs to be protected as a state, and that the modern state of Israel will one day, as a nation, embrace Jesus. And they get that idea from this. But I think that's wrong. I'll tell you what I think. I think what Paul meant here was not a chronological sequence in salvation history, but it is a logical sequence since the death and resurrection of Jesus, so that in every generation since Jesus died and came back to life, in every generation, Jews are being saved along with Gentiles, which was what we saw in Paul's own ministry. As he reached the Gentiles, Jews were also saved. And that by the time the full number of Gentiles has come in, what we'll also find at the same time, all Israel will also be saved. It will happen concurrently. When we find all Gentiles are saved, well, all Israel will also be saved. But then that brings us to the next question. How are we to understand all Israel? Is that all ethnic Israel? Well, the only way to understand it is that it is all the elect of Israel because we already saw in chapter 9, those saved are elected by God. So those who end up saved are those elected. And so what we see if we come back to our diagram, the elect might end up being small like that, but the elect might be a lot bigger. We just don't know. And so in the end, however... Many diselect is, it is all. That is what all means here, all the elect. And so Paul summarises now. Jews and Gentiles both have been disobedient so that God might extend mercy to both Jews and Gentiles. And so what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about salvation? If we have all been disobedient, If the Jews have all been disobedient and we both end up being saved, well, what that says is that salvation is 100% God. It is because of his mercy and grace alone. And so we see in verse 32, our last verse, For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. You see, God gets the glory in in the end. No one can rob God of his glory. And so this is as clear as you can get. God's worldwide mission always includes Jews, the natural branches, and of course also the Gentiles, the unnatural branches. And so you see how we would not normally think about this, but we're forced to because it is here. So what does it all mean to us? You see, this is not the type of chapter any preacher would pick up on a Sunday morning and say, well, I'll preach on Romans 11 today just to make it interesting. But it is here, so it is important. And it's when we come to understand the Jews' place in salvation that we come to fully understand our place in salvation. And so in the end, I think the points are simple. Firstly, 
there is a Jewish priority. There is a Jewish priority. And secondly, there is our needed humility. So firstly, it is helpful for us to recognise that there is in fact a Jewish priority. Like it or not, we are not blood descendants of Abraham. It's so easy for us to forget. They are still the natural descendants of Abraham. They are still the natural branches. And so there is a Jewish priority in divine privilege, in promises, in calling. It was meant to be for them first. And so what this means is that Christians, we must never be anti-Semitic or anti-anyone for that matter. I mean, Christians in history have been guilty of this in terrible ways. Jews have been persecuted, exiled, expelled from cities around Europe, even killed, and the modern neo-Nazi movement is just not on. To be anti-Semitic is really to be anti-Christian. You see, we have to remember that salvation has come to us because of them, because of their heritage, and that cannot be forgotten. But more than that, at the very least, just as we want the conversion of the world, what this chapter should cause us to do is to pray for more Jewish fulfilment, that more Jews will come to know their own Saviour, whom we already know. That is what we want for them. Now, no, our church supports a mission organisation to, to Jews, Jews for Jesus, they're one of our mission partners. But in my previous church, we supported another one, another organisation called Christian Witness to Israel. And I remember hearing one of these missionaries, Kei Chan. Interesting fella. He's Korean, born in Korea, a minister in Korea, went to Israel to learn Hebrew at the university there, and he can preach in Hebrew and English, but now lives in Sydney to evangelise back packing Jews who go to Bondi Beach. Now, a lot of Jews holiday in Australia. That was news to me when, before that time. They holiday in Australia often after their tour of duty in the Israeli Defence Force. And so he tells of stories of how they are shocked to hear this Asian-looking guy speaking to them in Hebrew. But there is this Jewish priority. The church corporately must remember them. Their heritage is theirs. And so we must pray for them, and we want them saved just as we are. Now, how do you think that will happen? Not that before the return of Jesus, somehow they'll miraculously all be saved, no. How will it happen? Well, Romans 10. The only way anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile, is if they hear the gospel and believe in their own Messiah. And so call upon the name of the Lord. Now for much of Christendom, not much of that has taken place. But late in the 18th century and the uh, 19th centuries, the church has started to realise, well, we've treated them wrongly. We need to place a greater emphasis on evangelising the Jews. And as a result, a French historian estimates that during the 19th century, 200,000 Jewish people joined the churches worldwide. But we must remember, it's very easy to forget, I forgot before looking at this chapter, there is a Jewish priority that we must never forget. 
We have a duty to them, like the rest of the world, and we must never forget. Secondly and finally, it is important for us to remember our needed humility. Throughout Romans, from chapter 1 onwards, we have been made to feel humble over and over again. Be humble, be humble, be humble. I mean, you're dead in sin. Be humble. You're saved by grace alone. Be humble. You're justified by faith alone. Be humble. You're chosen by God, not your choice, but ultimately God's. And so be humble. You're unnatural recipients of the promises to Israel. Be humble. You see, there's no way that any Christian, any one of us, can be proud or arrogant or boastful. You don't save you. You can't save you. God does. Graciously, mercifully. And so be humble. I mean, how else can it be? We Gentiles, unnatural branches, have gained heaven because of the Israelites. We have gained, as Gentiles, unnatural branches, eternal life because of the Israelites. We have gained all the covenant promises as Gentiles because of the Israelites. We have been adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters of the king of the universe because of the Israelites. But we deserve none of it. And so be humble. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do long for the day for the return of Christ, when all your faithful, both Jews and Gentiles, from every tribe and tongue and nation, will glorify you for your grace and mercy. But in the meantime, help us all to be humble. Keep us faithful. Keep us in your kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John. Uh, it seems like... Uh, uh, God is in the, in the business of bringing many Jewish people to faith, as well as Gentiles. So what are some helpful, what is the best way, rather, that we can be ministering or sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Hmm. Now, I'll answer this um, with a caveat, and that is I haven't had that opportunity to bring any Jewish person to faith. I've had a, a Jewish Christian friend who uh, shared a bit with me, so I, I speak with caveat, but in my reading... Uh, one of the ways to do it is, I actually know of your Messiah, do you want to hear of it? And so that's a, a way in, but like all evangelism, is through relationship, but that's a way in. I know of your Messiah, this is their Messiah, the one their Old Testament, their scriptures point to and speak of, I know it, do you want to know it? So that's, that's a way in. Yep, yep, good. Thank you. Uh, the second one's another great question, it's quite tricky. So... On the one hand, uh, there's, this, there's this idea that um, uh, when we're, we come to faith, God will help us persevere to the end, the doctrine of election. Um, sorry, the doctrine of perseverance. So how do we square that um, with this idea that, you know, what we were saying earlier, that we, might, we have to check ourselves every day and make sure that our faith is still true today? Um, there's a short answer and long answer. The short one is... Genuine faith will always be persevering faith. Genuine faith is not a once and then I forget it. 
genuine faith is always persevering. So if I genuinely believe, I will continue believing. I won't stop believing. That is genuine faith. Now, there are warnings in the Bible like this one, like in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. There are warnings against falling away. Now, how are we to understand that? I think the way to understand that is that warnings are still true. But if you're genuine, you won't fall. And so it's a bit like warnings um, of, a, of a cliff. Don't walk that way, otherwise you die. I mean, if you've got a sensible mind, you see that sign and you won't cross it. But if you do cross it, you will die. And so for Christians who have sensible mind or a genuine faith, we won't cross that line because genuine faith is persevering faith. Great. Thank you, John. That's, That's all, yeah. Well, friends, we've just thought about uh, where Jewish people fit into God's salvation plan. I don't know about you, but I actually find it both humbling and encouraging that God works the way he does. It's humbling knowing that he hardened hearts so 